The following episode may contain inappropriate material. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another installment of the PVD Cast. I am your humble host and your podcast purveyor, John Orlando, and welcome to episode number 253. I hope you're doing well out there, and I thank you for joining me on this extra special edition of the PVD Cast, as I have two guests from Tinseltown joining me, highlighting their careers in Hollywood, and I'm very excited to have them on. Guest number one is Bruce Valanche. Uh, he's a comedy writer. He's probably most known for being on Hollywood Squares. And he was the writer of the very infamous Star Wars Holiday Special. And he's done a ton more. And my second guest is Jack O'Halloran. Many of you will know him as Non from Superman 1 and 2, as well as many other film projects, including Dragnet and uh, his book, Family Legacy. Uh, so I had the opportunity to talk to both of these gentlemen about their careers. It's an excellent episode that I hope you all are going to enjoy, although it is going to be a little bit of a longer one. So I'm going to get to a quick bit of business talking about a great sponsor, and then we'll get to my conversations with Bruce and Jack. And of course, when I'm talking about sponsors, I'm talking about World's Greatest Comics. Of course, World's Greatest Comics is located at 5974 Westerville Road in Westerville, Ohio. And they have everything you need if you're a comic book enthusiast. They've got single issues. They've got graphic novels. They've got collections. They've got toys. They've got comic book supplies, collectibles, back issues. Basically, they got you covered, man. So stop on over to the store and say hi to Jeff or the fine folks over there at World's Greatest. Or, if you're not in the Central Ohio area, you can check them out online. Just go to WGComics.com or find them on Facebook. Just search for at WGComics. And no matter how you interact with them, let them know that you heard about the store from me right here on the PBD cast. Alright, with that being said, I'm going to throw it to a quick break. And on the other side of the break, I sit down and chat with Bruce Valanche and Jack O'Halloran. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the PVD cast and joining me is a man that is a comedy writer, a songwriter, an actor, one heck of a nice guy, Bruce Valanche. How are you doing this afternoon? Oh, I'm wonderful. I've changed my name. It's Quarantina Turner. <laughs> how, how has... How has COVID I've, been, I've been for in you? Isolation since March twelfth. So, I mean, you know, I've I've emerged. I don't know how it's going down in Ohio, but in Southern California, uh, it's been pretty dire in the sense of lockdowns. I mean, people people are taking it very seriously, and uh, um, not seriously enough, evidently. 
But I mean, those of us who are, you know, we're basically working out, out of the house and, uh, and emerging for things that we have to emerge for. L- lately, there's been uh, patio dining. I have been on more patios than any insect you know. You know, as I mean, it's like now it's like autumn and it's going to um, turn off these notifications. They're so pesty, uh, speaking of insects. And when uh, it gets cooler, you know, like the outdoor dining is not going to be so thrilling. So other, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, I've been wonderful. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to start off with a pretty philosophical question for you. Given your long tenure as a comedy writer and given today's climate of cancel culture and political correctness and whatnot. Do you feel that can, that comedy is entering into this weird new era of like caution when you're writing jokes and when you're doing bits? I, I think it's killed a lot of comedy. I think that, uh, that people are just so damn sensitive. I mean, it's, and, and I understand that. I mean, when, when, you know, people make jokes about my, my, my several minorities, I get sensitive too, and I understand the whole concept of uh, white privilege means that uh, that you can't tell people that when they're that that they they shouldn't feel the way they do because you're not in their shoes. So it, it all adds up. It means you just have to tread so carefully. But you know you're going to wind up offending somebody. So you either can kind of go full bore, or you can just sort of retreat. There there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of middle ground, and since. Uh, so much is shut down. It's not been a terrible challenge. And also because the, the, uh, the administration in Washington is so hilarious. If it weren't so deadly, it would be hilarious. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, as the saying goes, you, you go to the circus and you get a clown. <laughs> That's what happens. Okay. So you were born in New Jersey. If I may ask, what kind of a, of a child was Bruce Valanche? Well, uh, I was uh, adopted and I was four days old. So, you know, I always felt like I didn't belong there. But of course, I belonged where I was. Uh, I was, um, I was, uh, I thought I was chubby, but now I'm looking at pictures of myself. Uh, after my mother passed at 95, I suddenly inherited all of these uh, scrapbooks. And I'm looking, I'm thinking, well, I'm not so chubby. She thought I was chubby. Now I get it. But I, I felt like I was a chubby kid. I wasn't athletic. That was the thing, you know. Uh, back then, uh, we didn't uh, we didn't have the internet. We had to we had a life of the mind. Uh, we had to have a, a, a fervent imagination because if you weren't athletic, you were nobody, and uh, you were an egghead. And that was what what I was. I mean, I was very interested in in theater and movies and television, and I, I danced in front of the mirror. And my parents very wisely enabled all of that and let me uh, go into summer stock companies and let me be a child actor, never a child star, or we'd be having this conversation in rehab. But I was a child actor. I did commercials and I did, I played, I was a little, I was too big and my voice was too deep to really play kid parts. So I wound up playing parts I was uh, too young for. And then as I aged into them, uh, man, I was competing with the actors who really were the, the correct age. So that was when I found writing as a thing to do. Uh, and my, my parents were thrilled because they thought newspapers will never go out of style. Who knew? But I, but I was, I was a, a popular kid because I performed in all the plays at school. And uh, so I was visible and I was you know, editor of the newspaper. So I got around a lot, and, uh, which was kind of a solution to uh, not being athletic and not being beautiful. 
which, you know, are the two fallback positions for every child. When you just mentioned that you were a huge fan of movies, can I just ask, what are some of your favorite movies of all time? Yeah, it's always difficult to say that because I'm much older than you are. So I probably have movies that you have a, a, like a scant interest in. Sure. That are my favorites. I mean, my my real favorite, when I mention that people kind of like there's a profound silence, it's a movie called Tom Jones. It won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1964, way before you were born. Mm-hmm. But it was a huge hit at the time. And it, it started Albert Finney on a big career and uh, it's a fabulous movie. It's based on a Henry Fielding novel that was written in the 18th century and it's really funny and really dirty and uh, uh, beautifully made. And a lot of movies look like it now because it started a lot of cinematic devices. But that being said, I mean, you know, I, I, I looked at the AFI list of 100 great movies I thought it was hard to believe there were a hundred movies that were better than All About Eve. That's because I love the theater and it's such a literate movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Godfather movies are terrific. All the classics, you know, Citizen Kane, Singing in the Rain. Um, those are those are my favorites. I, I enjoy Star Wars. I was involved in Star Wars, but I'm not a Star Wars person, you know, and I, I haven't, I don't attach myself to any of those franchises particularly. <laughs> So I feel, you know, in a way, kind of like behind the curve. Okay. But, um, okay. I, I like a lot of the I like a lot of the classic stuff. Am, well, am I you, alone here, or is it? Do uh, you like? It too? No, no. I enjoy. Uh, I you you did hit the nail on the head uh, when you mentioned <laughs> 1964. That was about 11 years before I was born. But um, no, I enjoy the classics too. I enjoy just a good story. Uh, I'll I'll tell you. I'll be very honest with you, Bruce. One of the um, Films that I saw during lockdown that I had heard about, and I really, really liked it. Harold and Maude. It was such an oddball film, but gosh darn it, it was was. really good. It still is. I mean, uh, it's a template for a lot of people's, a lot of filmmakers, when they make their first picture, reference Harold and Maude a great deal because it was what influenced them. And they kind of realized, well, I'm a little wacky and offbeat, and I could do a little something like this, too. And uh, yeah, that and Hal Ashby's whole career was doing was interesting. I mean, he also made Shampoo, which is one of my favorite pictures, and is really kind of a brilliant political satire, and not just of politics, but of uh, uh, of the the society that uh, that keeps politics fueled with money. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, so I, I'd like to say Harold and Moore is a little whimsical, a little too much for my taste. Although I love Ruth Gordon, and a little bit of her goes a long way. And um, and Bud is a friend of mine actually, and uh, he's never between that and Brewster McCloud, he's never lived down being sort of a, a geeky uh, a geeky oddball. And now he's an old geeky oddball <laughs> and doesn't know what to do with himself. Doesn't know what to do about it. People, I mean, you know, it also appeals to like uh, to younger people. It appeals to the macabre in all of us. You know, the idea of of punking people, making mm-hmm. people think we're dead. You know, staging staging grim things that our parents tell us are you know are bad for us to be doing. That this, we're bad people. You know, it's 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 a, a movie about that kind of rebellion. And, you know, the other thing I was going to mention is I also enjoy those classics that are still, and you kind of mentioned it, are timely today. Like I think of Network and A Face in the Crowd, how yeah. they touch about, they touch on society and they touch on politics so well. well they're, they also, they're both 
particularly on media manipulation, both of those movies. Yeah. Both Face and the Crowd and Network, and they were written by two two legendary lefties, Bud Schulberg and Patty Chayefsky, who were the bane of Richard Nixon and all of those guys, because they wrote from the left. They were two New York Jews, so that didn't make them terribly popular with the Washington establishment. Uh, and they were writing about about the media being in um, being uh, the manipulative form of the media, about how you turn the media uh, to to what you want it to be, to to gain to get your agenda across. And it it, it sort of uh, it sort of presaged Fox News mm-hmm. because that, yeah. that network yeah. that Faye Dunaway is running is just like Fox News. I mean, Fox News would put a fortune teller on if they, if, if they hadn't done it in network, Fox News would be doing it now. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm just a fan of film. I, I watch all kinds of films, uh, new, old. I, much like you, would have a hard time narrowing down the list of favorite movies. So I think that's oh, something we share yeah. in common, Bruce. But, you know, also because some, some movies are our favorites. For you know the wrong reasons. I mean, favorite is such a wide-ranging thing. Uh, people assume that by favorite you mean good. <laughs> <laughs> Not True. necessarily the case. In fact, I, uh, I've been talking about doing a thing on Turner Classic, uh, which of course only shows old movies, but they are now they're inching into the '80s with their with some of their movies now and. Um, uh, a, a series about guilty pleasures, about movies we're not supposed to like, but we like them anyway for one crazy reason or another. And everybody would have a different kind of, you know, guilty pleasure. But uh, mine is uh, very show busy and campy and, you know, everything that's kind of a little bit overblown, overdone. Again, not to be confused with good. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you talked a little bit off air. You are an Ohio State University alumni. Aha! <laughs> Do you That's have right. any fond memories of oh Columbus? Oh my God! I remember. Well, here was Columbus to me. There were two uh, two movie experiences. One was I had a roommate who was from uh, Chillicothe, and in at Stradley Hall in uh, on on campus my freshman year. And there was a a, a movie theater at the corner of uh, of High Street and Lane Avenue. And it was the edge of campus, and it, it, it showed a lot of Swedish art films. They had a picture called I Am Curious Yellow that ran for a long time because there were lots lots of tits in the movie. And that was always, you know, I mean, that will draw a campus crowd no matter what. And it was banned in a lot of places. But uh, there was another picture there that was an above-board movie. that also happened to have tits. Ursula Andress's, as a matter of fact. Uh, it was called The Tenth Victim. It was in color and it was uh, Italian. And he, uh, so my roommate from Chillicothe went to see it and he came back and I said, well, what'd you think? And he said, well, they was all speaking Italian. There was, the words was written across the bottom of the screen. They was all speaking Italian. I thought, okay, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, 1965. This is what it's like. And then I thought you couldn't top that, but then we went downtown to the palace to see who's afraid of Virginia Woolf with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And as we came out of the movies, uh, there was a couple, an older couple walking behind us. And as they passed us, he was saying to her, that's what all they do in college, Margaret, drink and fuck. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> well, he certainly got the movie. I thought, that's okay. 
Oh my so I had I had a lot of fun. but now having said that I have to say um, there were like three theaters right around campus and uh, they they showed a lot of movies that were geared towards the the campus population so uh, while the great big movies were downtown at the Cinestage Hunt Cinestage and the Lowe's Ohio the uh, up along State Street there were a couple of theaters that were showing all the sort of hippie and go-go movies from from England in that period and all the surf the bikini beach movies and all that kind of stuff so there was a but they were also showing like really good stuff and uh and we had a very active uh group of of a uh, film of not a film school they were just starting a film program there were people who were like rapidly interested in movies and it was that period you know it was the 60s and with Easy Rider and all of these what they called youth pictures because the studios uh, were trying to garner our people, our demographic. So they used to fly in people from all over the place. Since I was the film critic for the Ohio State Lantern, uh, they'd fly people in and I would, you know, I'd talk to these studio executives all the time about uh, the new direction in movies. It was, it was pretty cool, actually. Did any of those movie executives ever give you flack for writing a bad review? Oh, yeah. But, uh... Not, you know, not flack so much. What are they going to do? I mean, you know, those are the reviews. You look in every review and you you say, is there something in here that I can learn? And uh, a lot of times there's nothing. A lot of times, you know, you have uh, uh, know-nothing reviewers or you have uh, people who have an agenda um, or they're angry about something or they're people who, who have what I call the critic's disease. Which is you because you're a, a critic, you're forced to see everything, and so when you see something that you kind of like, you tend to overpraise it because you have to sit through so much crap. And then when you see something that's really crappy with a capital K, you tend to go after it with with tongs. You know, you forget the human beings made the movie. And uh, I, I've gotten reviews like that. You know, I mean, uh, I wrote an Oscar show one year and. A major newspaper started the review by saying, writing like this should be a capital crime. And I thought to myself, does he know what a capital crime is? They kill you. They cut off your head. That is a capital crime. You go to the chair. You go to the chamber. Really? I wrote a television show and that's what he thinks should happen? I mean, what a lousy metaphor to use. And it's mean-spirited and I know where it comes out of the frustration of having to sit through everything. And so that's why I stopped being a critic because I, I felt that uh, I stopped I stopped having wanting to have to express my opinion every day, <laughs> except <laughs> the people I was sleeping with. You know, I mean that's different. They have to put up with it, but then they get a lot of other good stuff in exchange. So, <laughs> well, I'm going to move on to where I probably became most familiar with your work, and that is, of course, the game show Hollywood Squares. Mm-hmm. Not not only did you star on it, but you were also uh, the head writer. I was did the you? head writer, and I I wound up in a square because they, uh, Whoopi wanted me to MC to be the uh, the host. And uh, this was the third version of Hollywood Squares, and uh, they didn't want to screw it up. And they, so they said, no, we, uh, they tested me because they didn't want to piss her off early in the game. Because you really don't want to piss Whoopi off. You know, as, as she always says, you... Don't go near a black woman when she puts her hand on her hips. <laughs> she means business. 
So, you know, and there was Whoopi standing there with the hands on the hips and they said, okay, we'll test him. So they tested me and they said, well, you know, you're not really mainstream, <laughs> but we'll put you in a square. How about that? We want to we'll put you, they put me next to Whoopi thinking somehow I would tame her, but you know, there's no taming her. And they also didn't realize that, uh, that she's really a Jewish gay guy and I'm really a, a black woman. So we, <laughs> mel we meshed beautifully. And we had a great time. And for six years, we carried on. And, uh, you know, she didn't change, obviously. <laughs> so how, how is a, a show like that put together? Because I think as a, as a kid watching it, it just kind of, to me, seemed like, oh, it's these nine people. They just get together and tell jokes and everything works out brilliantly. But that's the, I whole, assume... that was, that's the whole idea. That's, that's what we want you to, to uh, walk away with. We want you to believe. We want you to tune in thinking, oh, it's a party again tonight for half an hour. Uh, well, we only shot 36 days a year, and uh, that was because we did five a day, and um, and we worked on weekends, which is when a lot of actors are available when they're not doing their other gigs. Uh, so we worked uh, uh, two weekends a month. We would shoot five shows on a Saturday, five shows on a Sunday, and we wound up doing 36 weeks uh, of a 52-week year that way. So as a head writer, uh, there was a, a staff of people who were just writing questions. And there was a staff of people who were just writing jokes. This was not like a gigantic staff. There were two or three people. Uh, but we would have to, uh, we would assemble a packet for each star when they came in in the morning of the questions that they would be asked if they were selected by the contestant. We didn't give them the answers. They were never allowed to that we would, we, they could know the answer. We did, we never gave them the real answer, and we told the uh, contestants that because we if we felt if the contestants thought that that the 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 squares always had the real answer, they just agree with them all the time, and then there would be no game. Mm -hmm. So we we didn't give them real. We gave them a bluff answer, which was something that could be the answer but wasn't. And then if we uh, at the beginning, we gave everybody a joke they could do if they wanted to. And we, we began cutting back on that when we realized you only give jokes to people who you know are funny. <laughs> and, you know, and the, then the biggest laughs will come from people who are not ex supposed to be funny. Like, you know, Garth Brooks would get a huge laugh off of, off of a joke which they weren't expecting. So we learned to give him some stuff. But, um, but, and he knew how to play it. But most people just would come for it through the joke or it would, it would sound a little heavy handed. Uh, so we would troop in at nine o'clock in the morning and uh, I would go around to, be, to all of the, the, the eight others and brief them on what they were doing. And then we would shoot three shows and have lunch and have a lot of wine and come back and shoot the two more. And it would play sequentially during the week. The first show we shot was the Monday show and so forth. So the Thursday and Friday shows, which were the after wine shows, were a lot looser than <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But we discovered from marketing people that the audience on Thursday and Friday was always bigger because people at the end of the week would come back and would want to see something that would take their minds off the week they were having. So the audience, in other words, was in the same mindset that we were in when we shot the thing. <laughs> so the Friday shows were often a free for all, and uh, that was that, that was the most fun. That was the most fun. That was how we did it. We had regulars: Gilbert Gottfried, Caroline Ray, uh, Brad Garrett was on a lot. 
uh, uh, there were a couple of others who were on often because they were they were you know you could count on them to be funny and and play the game and be reliable. And then we had theme weeks where we'd have huge stars, you know, Antonio Banderas and Melanie Griffith promoting a picture. We did a comic relief week with Billy Crystal and Robin Williams and Whoopi. Uh, it was I had a I had a great time. It was and my, I miss it. And my accountant misses it even more. <laughs> well, I I have to. St- ask about this next topic because i think it's probably um one that everybody wants to hear about that is the star wars holiday special oh my god i thought it was going to be my illicit weekend with zach efron okay well we can touch base on that in a minute i (laughs) no he's in australia with a girl i can't i can't i can't lower myself to discuss it okay this this Star Wars show, what the hell? Can I? Just, uh, I mean, I just gotta ask you, Bruce. Everybody, what that's was the going first on? Everybody asks, and and that uh, gives you some idea of uh, of how old they are and uh, where in their lives they discovered this thing. Because when we did it in 1977, again before you were born, I'm sure uh, it was uh, it was not unusual. I mean, there were lots. It was before just cable had just come in. But there was no internet, and uh, there was uh, cable was introducing the world to a larger universe than the three or four stations that were in each major each city. Uh, so, but w- in the under the old kind of television, there were lots of these variety specials where you would have weirdly themed things with people who did or didn't belong in them, and uh, this was was not surprising. Now, how it happened was. George Lucas had made, uh, Star Wars had been out for a year and a half, and he was about to start shooting The Empire Strikes Back, and he wanted to stir the pot because that wasn't going to come out until the following year. So uh, he had 10 stories, and he made. He said he was going to make six movies, which he eventually did make. And then he had these other four stories, which he sold into various other uh, media. And the last one was the one he sold, CBS. It was, I think... If I'm not speaking for George, I, b- I believe this is what he believes, that it, they were going to turn it into some kind of an original musical. Uh, and he didn't, I don't think, want to be involved in that. But he sold them the story of thinking that's what they would do. And I think when he found out what they were really doing, he disappeared. He went back to Lucasville. <laughs> he went back to Marin and uh, and kind of just, he, he installed a couple of people who he thought were going to uh, execute his vision but they were steadily overruled by the network who wanted to have a certain kind of show they wanted a show with a lot of stars and all that and the unfortunate part of the show was what george had sold them was the lead characters were the wookies and the wookies speak no known language in this or any other universe and they sound like fat people having orgasms you know trust me i know please i've been there so it was it was difficult to write this. So first of all, a lot of it had to be written in subtitles to translate. And um, of course, back then, nobody on TV, but you know, my friend from Columbus, I mean, he didn't know from subtitles. And this was, yes, this was 12 years later, but still uh, the American audience by and large did not go to movies with subtitles. And certainly nobody watching television read subtitles. It's ironic because now, at least half of the Star Wars movies are subtitled because they're all speaking some language from some other uh, solar system. 
So, but then because we couldn't have subtitles, we had to have stars explaining what the Wookiees were saying. So we had Art Carney as an intergalactic uh, Tupperware salesman, so he could translate for uh, for uh, Chewbacca's wife, Mala. That was her name. Mala, Mala. yes. Anyway, uh, so we had to write. He gave us the story. We had to write the scenes with the stars that also brought on the the variety performances by Jefferson Starship <laughs> and Diane Carroll and Cirque du Soleil and. Uh, uh, Harvey Corman as uh, Julia Child, intergalactic Julia Child, and uh, then uh, the legend, my legendary for me part of it was uh, Carrie and Harrison and Mark, uh, C-3PO and uh, R2-D2 on the Millennium Falcon, flying home to the Wookiee planet for Life Day, a holiday George invented, that he thought would be like Festivus for the rest of us, but not so much. And uh, they made a stop, a pit stop on Tatooine, home of the cantina. Da, 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 da. And uh, so we had a scene with all the aliens in the, in the cantina. And the uh, person who ran the cantina, a very strong woman, B. Arthur, mm-hmm. in her Statue of Liberty period. And B was a Broadway diva, and she wanted to do a number, and, and she did a number. And to me, that was the highlight. B. Arthur is singing to the aliens. Now, what happened was... The show went out Thanksgiving weekend of 77 on a Friday night. It did very well in the ratings. The critics kind of went, hey, what is this? Because it was not that unusual from Wayne Newton at SeaWorld. It was the same kind of thing. And then it kind of, you know, was buried and went away. It never repeated and uh, nobody knew about it. And then, they, then comes the Internet and people in the interim there's a generation of people who not only saw Star Wars, but they grew up watching the first three movies on VHS. They never even went to the theaters. They were too young. They're going over the internet looking for everything Star Wars, and they come upon this 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 piece of work, and they kind of looked at it, and they go, what is, th- George, how could you betray us this way? I mean, they got angry because by, by them, Star Wars was a religion. So they, were, they couldn't believe how this happened. And, you know, it's like, what, what were you, you know, did aliens take you away and make you do this? And he was getting death threats. And it, it got really ridiculous. And um, this thing, which had been buried for, at that point, 25 years, suddenly surfaced. And uh, we, uh, it became this sort of cultural linchpin. And then it went away again. And every time George has made another Star Wars movie, which he said he never would do, but meanwhile, he's made three and uh, two related ones. And every time one comes out, it comes back. You know, it comes back like some sort of a, of a chronic cough. There, there's another generation of people who have discovered this this horrible holiday special on uh, on the internet, and they and they come after you, and it just cracks me up. I figured, well, if we had known 40 years ago that people would still be talking about this, we would have paid closer attention. <laughs> also, you have to remember it was ni- it was 1977. We were all chemically altered. You know, <laughs> Carrie and I were snorting the sweet and low. So. There was, you know, anything we could put a straw into. So it, it, those were those days. Okay. And those of us who survived them are here to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that. I got to say, Bruce, that was fantastic, that story. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Um, <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about your um, your songwriting as well. You've penned 
quite a few. Well, you know, I I do parody writing. I mean, I, I I basically do parody writing, except I had a couple of lucky strokes with disco, uh -huh. <laughs> oddly enough, because I uh, I wrote the first draft of an, a, one of the great films of all time called Can't Stop the Music. Mm -hmm. It was the Village People musical, and I wrote the first draft, and then I quit because the producer, who was insane, kept uh, having me rewrite it for different actresses who were never going to do it. And Valerie Perrine wound up doing it, uh, and it was it was a legendary turd. And but I met in the course of it, I met the guys who created the Village People: Jacques Morale, the late Jacques Morale, and the late Henry Belolo, who were two Parisians who came to New York and saw all of these guys dancing in discos and decided that they would take all these American archetypes and, and turn them into a disco group. And they would sing about going to the YMCA. And of course, it was a, a landslide. And it got this movie made. And uh, after that was all over, Jacques and I were friendly. And he said he used to, he worked at a, had a, ran a club in Paris called the Crazy Horse. The cast was about about 50 topless Amazons. They were all the women. You had to be a minimum of six feet to get in there. And they were all worked topless. So it was, it was uh, you know, like, I don't know, going through Muir Woods. <laughs> there were all these gorgeous women with huge boobs, and they would lip sync. And he would get famous uh, singers to come in and do a, a, a record, a, an original song. And they would come out and they would lip sync. And he got Eartha Kitt to do Ooh. one. And he called me and said, darling, I think you should write this song for Eartha. He sent me the, the track and the title, Where Is My Man? A question that I am asking to this day. <clears throat> and we recorded it. And it was a big hit when they did it. And uh, he got it released in France as a, a record. And it went to number one. And subsequently, it was released all around the world where it was a big hit. Except in the U.S. where they wouldn't play disco records on the radio. And that that was how you broke records back then. So hmm. uh, uh, it was, they would, they would put out what you should call the expression a 12-inch. And that would be bought by people who ran discos and would play the records there. So, but it brought Eartha back and uh, she wound up like riding the back of that. We did an album, which that was a big hit. And then I did one more thing with him. I did a Village People album, the last Village People album, which had a song called Sex Over the Phone, which was uh, a big hit, a band by the BBC. So of course it went to number one in England. <laughs> of course. And I mean, and that is my kind of above board lyric writing career. I, I always, I, I never got serious about it. At one point, I called all my songwriter friends and said, let's write together. And they all said, yes, let's. And then nothing ever happened. Because, you know, that wasn't, I, I'd written lyrics to other people's music. And, um, I wrote parody lyrics to, you know, songs that were already established. But to actually sit down like a lyricist was some was a muscle I'd never worked. And it just never happened. That's all, you know, because most lyricists write a lyric and then the composer comes in and writes the song or they sit in a room and write the song together mm -hmm. and i've done that with a few things they didn't i mean we wrote uh i've written a bunch of uh candidates for title songs from uh movies uh and uh they never made it <laughs> i wrote a great song with uh, with uh, henry krieger who wrote dream girls uh, for Lost in America, Albert Brooks movie, but he went with another song. And I literally wrote the title song for Muppets in Space. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and they went with somebody else. And so I had a, 
yeah. I, but one, we did. I did a piece of special material with Glenn Rovin for Jane Krakowski to do on the American Comedy Awards, and we got an Emmy nomination for that, oh. which was amazing. We lost to a guy who wrote a nursery rhyme about a whale. <laughs> so there you go. There you have it. No good well, deeds Bruce, goes unpunished. Well, I was going to say, I have just a couple more questions. I appreciate you uh, uh, chatting with me here. But let's talk just about uh, your next big thing that many people know you for is that you had a long tenure as a writer for the Oscars. Um, this is true. How did you how did you fall into that particular role? Oddly enough, I had written for individual people like Bette Midler, who I've written for for only 50 years, which is difficult because she's 36. But I'd written for her for so long, and when she would be on the Oscars, we'd write what she was going to do, and other people I wrote for as well. And um, the same guy who produced Can't Stop the Music got the Oscar producing gig. And uh, uh, it was it was years later, so the stink of Can't Stop the Music was off him, more or less. And me. <laughs> so he asked me to come and do it. And of course, it wound up being the landmark year that Rob Lowe did uh, uh, Proud Mary with Snow White. And uh, he had uh, Alan, Alan Carr was his name. He had a lot of great ideas and, and a lot of ridiculous ideas. And because of his own personal loony tuneness, uh, the show, he, there were lawsuits and things. And the show was remembered as being a big disaster when, in fact, it had among the highest ratings the Oscars have ever had. And but it was a very polarizing show. Nevertheless, I survived and went on to write 23 more of them. So that was how I got involved. You know, it was uh, my friend thought, who was embarking on this thing thought, okay, I'll drag this guy down with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine it's a, it's a big undertaking to plan out that event. Oh, so, it's huge. Just like the Super Bowl. Yeah. But generally, I mean, this year is, of course, everything this year is, is way different. If it were a typical mm -hmm. year, they'd be sitting down right now and uh, working out who would be hosting the show or if there would be a host of the show. And uh, because the, I, I think probably they would like to have a host again because it worked one year, but not for that reason. And the second year it didn't work. So um, they, so that's when they start doing that. And in the old days, they used to give honorary awards on the show, but they added about 45 minutes to it. And it was it's so long that they relegated that, those to a banquet that the Academy holds. And then they show like a, a one minute precy of those awards. So there's nothing much to write until they uh, announce the nominees. And then you know what you're writing about, the shows that are that are going to be honored, the movies. And uh, also, you know, who will, who will be on the show, who's not going to exercise the ritual taking of umbrage, who's going to show up anyway. And then you then it's six weeks of, of frenzy, a feeding frenzy, getting it all, getting it written. And it tends to be the host since most of the hosts lately have been uh, people who have television shows and they, they have a writing staff, they bring their writing staff over. So whatever crumbs are left for the other writers who actually have to write the show are thrown around town and uh, a few people wind up coming in and doing that. So um, it, there's, there's rarely a marriage of the two in my experience. Okay. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it's and you know, everybody... It's like playing in the Super Bowl. You know, if you fumble, it's okay if you fumble in a game early in the season. But to fumble in the Super Bowl is something you carry the rest of your career. And uh, uh, the same thing on the Oscars, you know, since, since the world watches that show. So everybody wants to be 
brilliant. And so everything you write for them gets cleared by you know, more people than the KGB would ever think of having. I mean, it's insane how many people, I mean, the, the holistic gardener of the, you know, Wonder Woman's gardener tells you what he thinks she should say. <laughs> Final question. Um, you're known for a lot of your t-shirts and uh, how many do you own? Wow. Um, you know, several thousand. Uh, I have a collection. A lot of them, the assistant calls every now and again, and we have what we call the Home for Aged T-shirts, which is out in the valley. And uh, uh, they're the ones that I I, I I I can live without, but I think that they're worth having around because they're either great jokes or they are souvenirs of certain of certain things that you know that that will hold. And he keeps saying, "Oh, you're an eBay, you're an eBay auction waiting to happen." So fine. And then I, I keep a lot, you know, I keep a few hundred in the house and I keep adding to them. Although, you know, when you're in quarantine, why bother? You can only wear them on Zoom. Right. <laughs> so, but yeah, I always, I figured, you know, with a body like this, you got to show it off. And I, I, my mother always made me dress up. I hated it. And I think, and I, I went, as soon as I got to California, where you can really, you can go places in your underwear and they don't care. And this is even before Madonna was wearing it as her outerwear. Uh, I thought I, I can get away with, I love living here because I don't have to dress up. <laughs> then I went to Hawaii. We don't even have to wear shoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bruce, uh, do you have any social media or a website or anything you'd like to let people know there, about? There is a, sure. There, if they want to, there is, you get in touch with me if you want. There's a website called We Got Bruce, as in <laughs> Harvey Weinstein, wegotbruce.com. It is a fan site, and it is uh, monitored by uh, a guy in Nashville who is a big fan of mine who I've become friends with, and he knows what I'm doing more than I know. And they post it on there, and I go, "Oh, really? Is that happening? I had no idea." Because he'll find, you know, he'll find something somewhere. So, and and he can always get uh, anything you need to get to me gotten to me. There you go, Bruce Valanche. It has been a blast. Thank you so Thank very you. much. I really appreciate it. Wonderful stirring the ashes of my Columbus days. Yes, yes. <laughs> hey, everyone. This episode is brought to you by World's Greatest Comics. They're located at 5974 Westerville Road in Westerville, Ohio. They got everything you need for your comic book fandom. I mean, they got graphic novels, toys, comic book supplies, collectibles, posters, back issues, current issues, and they even have one world-class pool system. So if you never want to miss a single issue of your favorite comic, Sign up for the pool system, and every time it comes in, it'll be pulled and held for you at the register. So check them out online at WGComics.com, or you can find them on Facebook. Just look for at WGComics, and you can even stop by the store if you're in the area. Once again, it's located at 5974 Westerville Road in Westerville, Ohio. And tell them that you heard about the store from John Orlando on the PBD cast. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me this evening is a man that is, quite frankly, uh, well-known in Hollywood, a legend, if you would like to use that term, Mr. Jack O'Halloran. Jack, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing the best I can, whatever they'll let me get away with. <laughs> so life in California is treating you all right then? Yeah, it's not bad. You know, just if, when we're able to get to go places, it'll be all right. But everything shut down and stuff, it's kind of weird, but... I guess after well, the election, this thing will be over, I hope, anyway. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see, won't we? Yes, time will tell. 
Well, Jack, you are probably best known for your work in uh, the film Superman 1 and 2, but I'd like to, to kind of go back a little bit and start from the beginning, so to speak. Originally, you were a pretty darn good boxer. So how did you get involved in boxing? I was um, playing football first. And, okay. Uh, and I, I was going to play with the Eagles down in Philadelphia, and uh, they had a great team until they had a brand-new owner, Jerry Wallman, bought the team. And he hired this guy, Q Harrick, to, to coach. And I watched Q Harrick trade a championship football team away. Traded Sonny Jurgensen, Tommy McDonald. I mean, he just kept trading people. So one day, Timmy Brown and I came out of a meeting. And and I said, uh, this is kind of crazy. And Timmy Brown said, trade me while you're at it. And Muhammad Ali had just won the title. And I said to some friends in Philadelphia, you know, I could beat that guy. And uh, <laughs> they put me in a gymnasium. and. Six months later, I was fighting. Are you a fan of boxing still? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, even after I retired, I, I took a young man, uh, Frankie Lyles, to and made him super middleweight champ of the world, uh, WBA, and, uh, and created Freddie Roach. Freddie Roach started with us, with Frankie, and he's become a world-renowned trainer now. So you do you think that... With all of the, I guess you could say, competition for people to pay attention to sports, do you feel that the future of boxing is is in good hands right now? You know, it's uh, the lighter weights have some have some really good fighters, and uh, there's a, a couple heavyweights that can fight. But this, I mean, back when I was fighting, there were there were probably 15 heavyweights that hold the title today. You know. Mm-hmm. These guys were the ones that were champions. Um, there was much more competition and much more, uh, I guess you would say, devotion to the sport. Because when I started boxing, we got $10 a round. Uh, I mean, Ali is the one that brought money into the game. And mm-hmm. I mean, if somebody put a million dollars, if somebody put a million dollars on the table and said, that's your purse for a fight, you'd better bring a gun in the ring to beat me. I'm going to tell you something. Because I would have went and trained the way I was supposed to train and everything. It was, uh, it was just a different um, – people love the sport. It's just like football is the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, when I played football, the guys were just finishing playing both ways. And you didn't make a lot of money. You played because you loved the game. And, and, you know, people played injured. They played played through injuries a lot easier than they do today. And uh, a lot of sports have changed quite a bit. And I think that the problem is the money. You know, some of these people are making fortunes, and they uh, they just don't they don't seem to have the love of the game as much as they did years ago. I was up in Boston, boxing in Boston, and and the, and the Celtics, you guys like Larry Bird and stuff. They were just unbelievable athletes. And Will Chamberlain, when I was down in Philly, I knew Wilton, and it just some of the athletes were just so much more. Into, into what they were doing, I guess. And, you know, uh, they were tougher, tougher people, mm-hmm. more dedicated, well, I would say. Mm-hmm. Do you do you feel, just real quickly, just sticking to the, the theme of football, but it could really go to any particular sport, do you think that today's athletes have evolved a little bit in terms of their speed, their agility, their dexterity? Well, their... You know, I, you know people, people often say that, you know, they're, mm-hmm. okay, there's – 
there's training mechanisms and there's things that they they do but they a lot of a lot of like pro athletes today are like uh, 60 second wonders i call them because they don't have the conditioning that we had when we were when I, when i was playing you know like um if you talk about speed you can go all the way back to a guy called jim thorpe originated football and jim thorpe ran a 9900 with with the shoes and the equipment they had in those days if jim thorpe had the equipment they had today he'd probably run nine four you know what i'm saying to you yeah uh, yeah and yeah. thorpe was jim thorpe doesn't does not get the, the the credit or the adulation that he duly deserved because he was probably one of the greatest athletes that this country ever saw. And he played every sport. It wasn't just the one sport he played. He, he was great in baseball, football, track. I mean, he was a one-man track team. Mm-hmm. He started Pop Warner. That's where Pop Warner evolved from, from training Jim Thorpe. You know, and when you know, and I, I really got into Jim Thorpe because I, I, uh, I went down and met his family in Oklahoma and, uh, and I know a lot about him, where he came from and how he started. And, you know, here's a guy, when he was a kid, they, they from the Sac and Fox Indians, and, and his father used to take him by buckboard to school, like five miles away. They would drive him over to drop him off at school. And and by the time his father came back, Thorpe would be sitting in the in the yard wrestling with his uncle. He'd run all the way back home again and, and beat his father coming back on a horse and wagon. So he was like that kind of an athlete all his life, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when they took his medals away and everything from the Olympics, I helped his daughter get them back, uh, back in the sixties. And uh, I mean, the guy was just, uh, so when you say, are they bigger and faster? I think that athletes today, the way they train, make themselves more injury prone. You know, uh, I believed in the Lombardi system that you didn't need, to lift weights that isometrics would get you just as strong and you know watching these guys press like 600 pounds and stuff bragging about how much they can bench press but what they don't understand is that every time you bench press weight like that it's anti against your body and you're hyperextending your joints your knees and your ankles and that's why I went and, and the bigger they are the faster they try to get and when they go to cut their ankles fall out or their knees fall out. So you have a lot more injuries today. I think that uh, a lot of them are caused by some of the training conditions that they do, to be honest with you. And the fact that athletes evolve too young, you know, like when I was playing ball, you weren't allowed to play pro ball until your class graduated college. Mm-hmm. And they, they're taking kids out in their freshman year. Yeah. You know, guys, you're a freshman, they're offering you a ton of money. And you're gone into pro sports and and they don't last. They you know, they're getting hurt because their bodies aren't really fully mature to take the hits and the whacks that they do. And they have a lot bigger a lot better equipment than we had. You know, I played ball yet a single bar. Uh, and I played with the last great Chuck Bednarik, who was uh who played both ways with the Philadelphia Eagles. He was a center and a linebacker and one of one of the fiercest linebackers you ever saw play the game. Let me tell you, concrete Charlie they used to call him, and Chuck was he was just an amazing athlete. But you had guys like that that were just unbelievable. I mean, and you talk about toughness. You remember Johnny Unitas? Yes. 
Johnny Unitas was playing quarterback one time, and I think he was they were playing Detroit or somebody, and somebody hit him in the mouth and knocked his front teeth out right there on the field. He just reached down to the ground and took a handful of, of sod and shoved it up into the holes to stop the bleeding and wouldn't come out of the game. I mean, you, can you imagine a guy doing that today? Please. They break a fingernail, they're out of the game, you know. it's uh, <laughs> they're, they're, There's not the same toughness or attitude towards uh, sports as, as, as there was in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, I, I just think that there were just a different breed of people. After your uh, boxing career, you transitioned into acting, and your very first role was as Moose Malloy in Farewell, My Lovely. Um, could you recap how you landed that role? They, we, they came to me when I was in 1966, and I was up in Boston. They came to me. Uh, Steve McQueen came to town to do a picture called The Thomas Crown Affair. Mm-hmm. And uh, we looked after him when he came into town, and he was—he uh, and I became really good friends. And he said, "Man, come on down the set. I'll put you in the movie." He said, "You know, we'll take you back to Hollywood. You get a side card." He said, "We'll have a—we'll have a great time." Steve was a was a, a a real man's man. He was a good guy. I liked him a lot. And I said, "I, you know, I'm undefeated, and I, I don't think this is a workable deal for me." So I turned him down. And then they offered me in 1969. I knocked out Manuel Ramos in L.A. And he was ranked number two in the world. I'm looking to fight Ali now. And uh, they offered me the picture called The Great White Hope, which was the biggest picture in Hollywood with James Earl Jones. And they wanted me to play, um, uh, what's his name, the big white guy who to fight for the title, and um, Jess Willard. And I uh, I turned him down. And they said, well, you, th- this deal was all put together. You're supposed to just sign a contract. I said, eh, I don't think so. And McQueen said, what are you, crazy? And I said, you know, forget about it. So when I retired from boxing, they came to me to do Farewell, My Lovely. I came to Hollywood. They sent me out, and, and I did a screen test, and Robert Mitchum said, it's either him or I don't do the movie. So I blame it all on Mitchum. <laughs> it was, uh, if, you ever, if you ever wanted a mentor in your life, boy, he was, a, he was unbelievable. Robert was, Robert was great. What advice did Robert give you? That you, you know, he taught of- me. Uh, he he taught me. I, I had never been in front of a camera before, other than to do commercials when I was boxing. But uh, the very first day I was ever going to work you know, in front of on a movie set, and he arranged for us to be to go down to the set together. They he came and they picked me up, and and he he was in the lobby of the hotel, standing against the wall, and nobody even recognized me. He had sunglasses on and stuff. And I come bouncing through the doors. He said, oh, this must be Jackie O. <laughs> I said, yeah, okay. Hey, you know, what do you say to Robert Mitchum? You know what I mean? And yeah. we, we hit it off quite well. And, and we're down on the set the first day, and I'm getting all dressed up in my monkey suit and stuff and getting ready to go up and go to work. And he looked at me, and he said, um, read that script, kid. I said, read it. I said, I know your role, Charlotte Rampling's role. I said, yeah, I know backward and forward. He said, good, throw it in the trash can. I said, what? He said, don't let me catch you doing what thousands of people in this town do, acting. Just be yourself. Take yourself, put yourself into this character and walk down the street like it's you. And I said, wow. I said, well, I wasn't planning on putting any grand performances on. I'm just going to be myself. He said, that's what you need to do. And he taught me eye lines and he taught me different things. And 
we up on a set and we we shot the first very the very first scene we shot and they started moving the cameras around and i said to him what's the deal here man what, what are they doing he said you really don't know the i said no i'm asking what's what's going on he said that's it kid i said that's all there is to this he said that's a whole enchilada i said oh man i'm a star and that became the tagline of the movie and you know and he uh and he just took me hand by hand, you know, and showed me like the little intricacies of not how to act, but what the react when reaction of people behind the camera and don't worry about them and, and things like that. And uh, he was just a great mentor, boy. He was a, he was a trip. And the film worked out really well. It was uh, it turned out to be a very good film. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but if you haven't, you're cheating yourself. It's a good I, you movie. know what? I'm going to have to look it up. I, I'll be honest with you, Jack. Never, I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. It's a great film, really is. I mean, you, you're talking a great cast. It's Charlotte Rampling and Harry Dean Stanton and Anthony Zerby and John Ireland. I mean, it's just uh, Sylvia Miles. I mean, it's, it's great, great film. Mm -hmm. Good film. If I could ask, I, I read, were you considered for the role of Jaws in the oh, yeah. uh, James Bond they movie? Came, they begged me to do that. They, uh, I did farewell, and then from farewell, I did King Kong, and uh, and I was just finishing King Kong, and we had a picture to do called March or Die with uh, Gene Hackman and Catherine Deneuve, and there was a Foreign mm -hmm. Legion movie with a kid, Terrence Hill, who was a huge Italian star, a big star in Europe, was a big expose deal, and and they came, uh, Cubby and his son came to Hollywood to, to see me. They, you know, they wanted me to do the Bond, the Bond movies. And uh, and I was around the corner of a restaurant with Mitchum celebrating his birthday. And I said, I got to go around to my agent's office. These guys are sitting there waiting for me. And he said, for what? I said, they want me to do the, the Bond movie. He said, you read the script? I said, yeah. He said, you like it? I said, no. He said, then tell him, forget it. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> it's a pretty big movie, Robert. He said, hey. I said, what are you doing now? He said, you're going down to do March or Die. I said, yeah. He said, you know what? Just do what your do what your head tells you, kid. If you don't like the script, just tell them forget it. So I went back and I probably could have got out of the one movie, but I just didn't like I didn't like the role. I didn't want to get cast into that constant big like a big dumb guy thing, you know what I mean? I, I was looking more like a Victor McLaughlin type career. So March or Die worked out pretty well. And while we we're doing March or Die, they called us up to London, Hackman and I for Superman. Mm -hmm. And uh, to go up and meet Richard Donner. And uh, when we flew up to, to, to uh, sat down with Donner, and I had read the script and he, um, he said, how do you feel about playing a guy that's uh, a mute? And I said, you know, I can tell you the truth. I embraced that idea. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, Jackie Gleason was a good friend of mine. And he did a picture called Gigo and won an Oscar for playing a deaf, dumb mute. I said, if I ever get a chance to take a role that I'm using facial and body language uh, as expression, then I, I'm definitely going to, I would love to do it. I said, Nan is a perfect character because you have Terrence Stamp as a, a, a vicious general and Sarah was a man eater. So somebody had to relate to the kids because it's a big child audience. So I said, I'm going to take this big brutish guy and play him like a child learning how to work his eyes and stuff. I said, you know, and relate to children. And um, and it worked out pretty well. Do you have fond memories of filming Superman? 
Oh, we had a ball. Yeah, I mean, yeah, how could you not? I mean, you're you're talking about working with Marlon Brando, and that Terrence Terrence Stamp is a great actor. I mean, and if you look at if you look at all that, like in the beginning of the film when they had the the judgment when they sent us out into the into outer space, mm-hmm. all those judges that were on Krypton, you're talking about some great actors that were there, Trevor Howard and uh, just some brilliant English actors. So we got a chance to mingle with a lot of royalty in, in the industry. That was, uh, and Brando was, Brando was great. I mean, geez, it's, uh, I've been very fortunate in my career to, you know, work with Mitchum and Brando and Omar Sharif and Jimmy Coburn and, you know, uh, a host of, of very talented people. Gene Hackman did two pictures with Hackman and great experiences. Well, I'm going to ask about another movie that, um, uh, I'm just kind of curious as to, you know, you're talking about the the different people that you've worked with and, you know, Gene Hackman and, and uh, Terrence Stamp and Her- Harry Dean Stanton and some of the, and Robert Mitchum. Uh, you had a role in the, I believe, 1988 film Dragnet as Emil Mills. Oh, great movie. Man. Yeah, yeah. You could watch that movie 50 times and you would still not get all the one liners that Danny Acker would throw out. Yeah, you know, Danny yeah. was Danny was unbelievable, and it was a breakout picture for Tom Hanks. Did you think Tom Hanks was going to be a big star? Because you know this is still oh, very yeah. early on in his no, career. No, yeah, you could tell he had, he had, yeah, he had. Uh, he was a natural, you know. He was uh, and a good guy, and he and he loved the business, mm-hmm. and that's that's a big part of it. You know, you you get uh, people. You know, when you've worked around, I've been in the industry a long time. The older actors were very conscientious. They showed up on time. They were, you know, they were very conscientious about what they did. Uh, today, a lot of these kids, they show up when they feel like it. They're, they're gone for a few days and stuff. And I don't know, different. it's like a different feeling with some of them. So, you know, it's uh, just uh, Dragnet was, Dragnet was, Tom Mankiewicz, who did Superman, was a director, and it was a great script, and we had a lot of fun doing it. I mean, it was a it was a fun movie to do. Uh, Ackroyd working with Ackroyd and Hanks was was great. First, Christopher Plummer was in it, you know, mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. pretty good actors, and, and again, you're dealing with some with some fine talent, boy. You know, so yeah, we had a, we had a good time, and the picture came out very well. It was a good movie, you know. Yeah. So you've also had some roles on some TV shows like Hunter, Knight Rider, Murder, She Wrote, and many others. Uh, which do you prefer to do? Do you prefer to do television or do you, would you prefer film. to still do movies? I, I prefer film. I, you know, I, 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 I probably could have done a lot more television, but I didn't really like it. Uh, Cause I, it was like wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. You know, it was one camera on top of another. And it was just, uh, I, I just didn't think it gave, a true actor, uh, the real ability to display what he could do, you know, mm-hmm. but I did some good shows and people liked what I did. I said, you know, it's a, I learned something from Mitchin that I never forgot. And he was so righteously right on, you know, when I, the, the date I said to him, Oh man, I'm a star. And then I said to him that Robert, what is a star? What's the definition of a star in Hollywood? And he looked at me and he kind of smiled. And he said, it's one word, kid. It's a word called presence. Some people have a presence on screen and it just works and the camera loves you. And, and he taught me not to look at the camera, look through it and stuff like that. He said, and he said, and you have that. He said, you know, 
you can go to a film and you could see Brando makes no difference what role he's doing. It's always, boy, Marlon was great at this or Marlon was great at that. And then you could see a guy who is a very fine actor, Bill Holden, do a picture and come out of the picture and say, boy, he was really good. What was that guy's name? You know, the, the, the presence is, is, is a word. that, uh, And you could do a small role somewhere, but you have a presence on the screen that people want to see you again. Well, let's talk about your book that you have out called Family Legacy. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Give us a little summary of it. Yeah, Family Legacy. Is, I, had a, a, I had a very famous father, a guy called Albert Anastasia, who was uh, the head of Murder, Inc. in New York and one of the original dons of the families of New York. I wrote a book that um, some people were thrown under the bus when the Kennedy era came in. And uh, when you go back to the beginning and you what's so-called organized crime or the so-called mafia or whatever you want to call them, each immigrated nationality, the Irish, the Italians, they all had their little gangs. Uh, the mafia just it was a bit bigger than a lot of them. And the original monies that they made, they put back into the growth of a country. They created jobs for people. My father ran the waterfront and uh, they created construction. Co- and they did that because their source of revenue was was gambling, loan sharking, and extortion. And if you didn't have money, how could you pay them? So they made sure you went to work, you know. Mm-hmm. And they invested in a lot of companies, Westinghouse, General Electric, Sears and Roebuck's, uh, the insurance companies. So they put a lot of money back into the growth of the country, and no one ever talks about that. All they ever talk about is the wham, bam, thank you, ma'am stuff. And and there's a lot of things that happened in the course of our country and the growth of it that uh, no, just like today, the media never tells you the truth. Well, it's been like that for a long time. So I wrote this book, and it starts with my father's death in 57, and it ends with the Kennedy death, and I tell the truth about the Kennedy death about Jack Kennedy's assassination. And, and then we've got three more books we're going to do. So, and then we have Charlie Luciana's, uh, The Last Testament of Charlie Luciana. His son is a friend of mine, and we're going to merge some stuff together. So we're probably going to wind up doing a miniseries that will turn into a series. And it'll be probably one of the best series that's ever been seen on television because we're going to tell the truth about a lot of things that happened in the country and uh, questions that people have always asked for the answers to. Like, I don't know if you just saw the picture they did, the the Irish. Mm-hmm. The Irishman was totally false. I mean, I, I knew Frank Sheeran very well. And he was a driver for Hoffa. And did he whack a couple people? Yeah, but he never killed Hoffa and he never killed Joey Gallo. Uh, that's all Hollywood taking advantage of unanswered questions. Like, where's mm-hmm. Hoffa and who killed him and all that stuff. And uh, Frank didn't kill Hoffa and he never killed Joey Gallo. And Russell Buffalino was a good friend of mine. He was from Western Pennsylvania and a very, very smart man. And poor Russell. Russell would be turning over in his grave if he saw that picture. Although Joe Pesci portrayed him very well. but And I knew them all. So when I see a picture like that, it just aggravates me because they're, they're just taking advantage of, of something and putting their own version out. I mm-hmm. guess the truest picture that of, of organized crime that was done is the, is the Godfather. And that's because they told Mario Puzo what to write. And in The Godfather, when, when Marlon Brando is approached to go in the drug business, 
And he says, you know, if we touch it, our children will touch it. It'll be the downfall of the families, and I have to pass. My father said that. That's why they killed my father in 57, because he wouldn't, he didn't want the drugs coming through the ports that he ran. You know, he said, this is not the business that we signed up for. And a lot of things changed. Uh, when Albert died, there was a lot of changes. And they, they, they came to me four years later, and they sat down and said, it was the worst mistake they ever made, because he was the glue that held things together. The people were, people were scared shitless of him, you know, because he was just a no-nonsense individual. I mean, if you took an oath of emerito and you joined something, then you joined it. You didn't play a game with it. And, you know, and if you made a mistake and stuff like that, people say, well, you got to give a guy another chance. And Albert would say, if I give him another chance, then he's going to take my kindness as a weakness, and down the road he's going to rat us out. And that's what happened, and that's what's been happening ever since his death. Well, Jack, we're getting up to our time limit here. I don't don't mean to cut you off there, but I want to make sure that people know where they can find you on the internet and where they can pick up the book. And, you know, if you've got any other projects, it sounds like you're still a very, very busy man. Yeah, we're building a great studio in Nevada. Okay. A four million square foot studio out there. And for the very first time, every bit of the industry will be under one roof. And they're building a smart city next to it that'll house 30,000 people. So now... Like, I live in Redondo Beach. If mm-hmm. I'm going to do a picture at Warner Brothers, I got a two-hour run up the highway, traffic-wise, because of traffic. So that's like four hours out of your day. And the way we're going to do this in Nevada, people will be 15 minutes from work. So your your mind's a lot clearer. So yeah. what it does, it makes everything much more cost-effective, you know? Mm-hmm. And to have mm-hmm. everything under one roof for the first time, which should have been done 30 years ago. They had the rain the space and the area around the old studios, but they just, um, you know, they went a different way and it needs to be all put together. And, and we've got it pretty much, uh, we're just getting ready to break around on it. It's going to be great for the, it's going to change the industry. You're going to be able to, you make better product because your cost effectiveness will be there and mm-hmm. everything being right at your fingertips is going to make things a lot easier and a lot better. And the technology is changing so rapidly today that you don't even know, you don't even need to go on location. It's LED, LED screening and stuff. And that stuff, amazingly, we did when we did Superman 2. When we shot Superman 2, we broke all the technology rules. We did the fighting shots up in the air. We were in body molds. We had a big 70-foot screen with, with pole arms that come out with a body mold in it. And they shot us into the movie. We were laying out on these body molds with movements that we like flying around. And they shot us to film behind us. And they shot us into the movie. It's called Vista Vision on Vista Vision, which is a simulation of what they're doing with this. And it worked. That's why Superman 2 stands out so great even today. You know, mm-hmm. there was no CGI. Mm-hmm. We, we did all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which made it that much better. All right. Well, Jack, um, any any websites or anything you would like to tell everybody about real quick where they can get in touch with you or keep talking? And uh, everything you need to know about me is there in the book. And we're getting ready to do Family Legacy. And some people are very excited about it. And uh, we're sure excited about it. And I have a great project in Ireland that I've been dying to do for 40 years. And you ever see the picture called The Informer? Uh, yes. Yes. It's a great old John Ford picture, right? Victor mm-hmm. McLaughlin won an Oscar for it, for playing, uh, for being a leading actor, first character actor I never did. And I wrote a script 
back in when I was doing King Kong and we're finally going to do that in Ireland. And I'm really kind of excited about that. Yeah. As soon as they let us out of our house. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jack, with that, um, I'm going to let you go. Thank you very much for spending a little bit of time with us today, just talking about your career and talking about sports and all the different topics that we've covered. So thank you. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to throw it to a quick break. And on the other side of the break, I'll be back to wrap up this episode. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. My conversations with Bruce Valanche and Jack O'Halloran, two uh, Hollywood heavyweights, if you want to call them that. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. I know it's been a little bit of a longer one, so I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm going to get right down to it. I'm going to let you know where you can get in touch with me. Uh, You can shoot me an email, johnorlando at pvdcast.com. You can leave me a message over on the Facebook page and the Instagram page of this podcast. Just search for at pvdcast, and you can find me on Twitter. My personal Twitter handle is at pvdmvp. And the PVDcast is available through lots of different outlets, including pvdcast.com, the online home of yours truly, and all of those major podcasting places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, etc., etc. Just go to the search bar, type in PVDcast or PVDcast John Orlando, and you're sure to find it. And don't forget to rate and review. That helps me in the algorithm. And of course, subscribe so you never miss an episode of the PVD cast. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to get on out of here and I will chat at each and every one of you later. Stay righteous, stay independent, and stay safe and healthy. Following has been a production of John Orlando Enterprises, LLC, copyright 2020.